Well, I have, we have three children who are all adults in their 20s. They're married. And a phrase that I hear them saying, unfortunately, more and more, um, is, is this. Well, another one of my friends has deconstructed their faith. And what that means is their friends may have grown up in a church and heard the gospel. Maybe they've made a profession of faith. Maybe they've been baptized. But now they're rethinking things and many of them are walking away from the faith. In fact, there are even whole podcasts devoted to people who are deconstructing um, they're, they're meant to just kind of, I, I think, um, make you question your faith. And they're saying, well, I have doubts about this and I have doubts about that. So deconstructing is a word and a thing that is really going on. Now, last week, um, I can't cut the grass without listening to something educational, so... I will spend like three hours looking for something so I can cut the grass for 20 minutes listening to something educational. Um, so last week, I listened to a podcast of uh, two people who, one was a pastor, but doubting a whole bunch of things, and the other was a girl who was just deconstructing. And there's so many things that, the, the, uh, so many questions that are being raised in their minds. But one of them was this. The girl said, well, the Old Testament is just a bunch of random stories that don't make any sense. Okay? Now, I don't think that's a true statement, but I know why she would say it. Rarely do we get an overview of the entire Old Testament. Okay? A lot of times you grow up in church and you get the story of David and Goliath and you get the story of Gideon and you get Noah's Ark and it's all these stories and you got the coloring sheets and everything. But what's the big picture? What's the point? So this morning, here's what I want to do. We're going to look at... Nehemiah chapter 9, and I think I scrunched a lot of it on the bulletin there, okay? Um, I'm not going to have the text on the screen as I normally do, so you can follow along in the bulletin um, or in your Bible, okay? And why are we doing Nehemiah 9? Well, first of all, we finished a year and a half in John's Gospel last week. Um, And in youth group, we've been going through Ezra and Nehemiah, and I did Nehemiah 9 last week. And you know what I realized? What it is, is it's a prayer. It's a prayer of praise to God and a prayer of repentance for Israel's sin. And in this prayer of praise and repentance, they cover the history of, of the Old Testament. So really what it is, is it's a divinely inspired chapter that tells us what we should get out of the Old Testament. Okay? So this ties, ties it together. All right? So, um, 
really, let me give you, let me give you the, the summary sentence. Nehemiah 9.33, they're praying to God. God, you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. That's the story of the Old Testament. You've been faithful to us and we have been wicked toward you. Okay? Um, so here's the context. By the time we get to the book of Nehemiah, Israel has been in Babylonian captivity. Babylon came in and destroyed Jerusalem and took captives into Babylon. They've been in Babylonian captivity for 70 years. They are allowed, after 70 years, to go back and rebuild the temple and rebuild Jerusalem. And then under Nehemiah, they go and rebuild the wall. In 52 days, they rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. They call a holy assembly, and for seven days they celebrate. Seven days of thanksgiving and feasting. But then on the last day, it's a day of repentance and fasting. And this prayer is prayed by eight Priests. Now, I don't know how they did it. I don't think they all prayed it together. Maybe they divided it up. I, I don't know how they did this. But this is the prayer of repentance uh, by eight priests, summarizing the history of Israel. Now, I realize reading this amount of Scripture is kind of taking a risk because some of you may doze off, so... Get your elbows ready to wake up your neighbor. And I, can I challenge you to really concentrate this morning? Okay? If you don't stay focused, you probably will drift off. So I realize there's a lot to cover here. But let me give you the outline. Here's the outline. First, we're going to see in this prayer them praising God for his faithfulness to Israel. Then it turns toward repentance, Israel's unfaithfulness to God. And then the, the final message is this. We need a new covenant. We've blown it. We need a new covenant. Okay? So you ready? Here we go. God's faithfulness to Israel. Nehemiah 9 verse 6 says, You are the Lord, you alone. What a wonderful song we sang, huh? Right? You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven and the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, all their angels, right? The earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the hosts of heaven worships you. Interesting thing to note, the God of the Bible, the God of Israel, is not presented as a local deity, a lot of the nations surrounding Israel had their own individual local gods. So, you know, like Geneva would have the Viking god. Batavia would have the bulldog god. And you would pray to your god and offer sacrifices to your god. And hopefully he would be nice to you and give you crops. And if you were to have a football game, your god would, would beat the other god. Okay? But it was local gods. The god of Israel... God of heaven and earth. They're not claiming to, to have a local God. They have the one true 
God. In other words, this flies in the face of what you call multiculturalism. Multiculturalism says everybody has their own religion, everybody has their own value system, and they're all right. This is saying there's only one true God and one true belief system. So this verse flies in the face of multiculturalism. Okay? So God creates the world. Now, as you know, Adam and Eve fall into sin, and the whole world becomes sinful. God has to actually flood the earth, and he starts over with one family, Noah's family, and the earth is repopulated, and guess what? It's just as evil. And people fall into violence and into idolatry. And if we go to a, a town, a place called Ur, there is a temple to the moon god. All right? So you go, why does that matter? Well, verse 7 says, You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram, which means exalted father, and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans. So, world has gone wicked. God reaches down and he points to a guy named Abram. And he gives him the name Abraham. Abram means exalted father. Abraham means father of a multitude. And God says, Abraham, I'm going to move you from Ur all the way over here. I'm going to give you this land called Israel. Okay? He was a moon worshiper. But when God revealed himself to, to Abraham, Abraham believed in this God. And God promised him the land and that he would be the father of a multitude, which was really difficult because he was really old, and his wife was really old, and they didn't have a baby yet. But they believed in God. And when Abraham was 99, and Sarah was 90, they had a baby. Right? Any volunteers, ladies? No. <laughs> if he did it once... Wait. <laughs> All right, so... Let me, keep, let me keep reading. Verse 8. You found his, his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant. That's a promise. To give to his offspring, this multitude that's going to somehow appear, to give to his offspring the land of, Canaanite, of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite and the Jebusite and the Gergesite, and I always throw in the mosquito bite, right? <laughs> and you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. So, picks one guy. You're going to have this land. You're going to have a multitude of people descend from you. Okay? He believes in him, but it's not a direct line to inherit the land. Abraham finally has a son named Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. There's a famine, and to get food, they go down to Egypt. They don't have any land yet. And now the whole bunch of them go to Egypt, 
And for 400 years, they are in Egyptian slavery. Okay, so you learned something there. God is faithful in his promise, but not always is his promise fulfilled immediately. Okay, so they are in Egyptian slavery for 400 years. Now God says, I'm going to deliver you from slavery. And God raises up a leader named Moses, actual picture of Moses. Now, we know he, that really that's Moses, right? <laughs> I looked at that picture. Do you know that that's not Hebrew? And I thought, oh, don't believe the movie. But then I realized it's probably Egyptian hieroglyphics because he might have Well, God wrote it, so he would have written in Hebrew. But whatever, okay. So God raises up Moses, and it says, And you saw, verse 9, the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers, and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. So God performed signs. What did he do? Well, God tells Moses to go to Pharaoh, and he says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no, I'm not going to let your people go. So God brings plagues upon Pharaoh, turns all the the water to blood, and frogs cover the land, and uh, livestock dies, and then he covers them with boils. And uh, Pharaoh says, nope, not going to let you go. Well, finally, the firstborn sons die, and Pharaoh lets them go. So the whole multitude of Israel leaves Egypt and they're up against the Red Sea and they look and here comes Pharaoh and his army. So it says, and you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land and you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. They go through the Red Sea Pharaoh's army pursues, the sea collapses on them, and the army is destroyed, and Israel is now on the other side with no enemies. Okay? You go, how did they know where to go? Did they have GPS? Well, they kind of did. Verse 12, by a pillar of cloud you led them in the day, and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. So I read that and I I thought they must have taken a nap every day because they had a pillar at night and a pillar during the day. Some of you, around noon, you're going to go, I get it, a pillar! (laughs) (laughs) So, Next, verse 13, you came down on Mount Sinai. That's the actual Mount Sinai. Okay, right there, he went up. I don't know what this is, like a Taco Bell, I think they're building right there. That's modern day Mount Sinai. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them, now listen to this, right rules, true laws, good statutes, and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statues and laws by Moses your servant. I think verses 13 and 14 is really emphasizing that this God 
is for them. He has led them out of slavery and he has given them commandments and laws and, uh, and he's made it very clear what he expects of them. Okay? How did they eat? Verse 15, you gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock. Remember, there was no water and Moses had a staff and he stuck, struck the rock and water came out and they had water. You told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. So that's all the first part. The priests in Nehemiah are praising God for his faithfulness to Israel. Now we're going to see Israel's unfaithfulness to God. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously, okay, meaning they just took God for granted. And they stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. Right? They want to go back to Egypt. We liked it back in Egypt. The food was better in Egypt. You go, what, what about the, you know, the whips and the heavy labor and being slaves? And they said, yeah, well, there was that. But we, at least we knew what was on the menu. Right? Back there, at least life was predictable. So we want to go back to Egypt. So here's a question. How about you? In following Jesus... Do you want to go back? A lot of people are saying, hey, I've tried this. I'm done. It's too hard. Okay? They're deconstructing or becoming ex-evangelicals. Okay? Now, some people outright reject Christ, and then to do this properly, you go on TikTok and make a video saying why you're rejecting Christianity. Okay? So a lot of people just outright reject Christ. But most American Christians who are deconstructing just kind of ease out, hoping nobody notices. Yeah, you go to church occasionally, and then other things become more important, and that Bible gets a lot of dust on it, and it just you kind of fade away. And I wonder if a lot of this deconstruction has to do with the fact that many people were sold on a kind of Christianity that hid the cost. I think occasionally we need to be reminded of Jesus' words. Now understand, we are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. You are not saved by what you do. You are not saved by enduring persecution. You are not saved by anything, any good works. But having said that, if you truly have faith in Christ, that means you love Him. And if you love Him... You sacrifice for him. So let's take a look at the cost. Here's, 
Here's the cost of following him and then the cost of not following him. Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now this was before the crucifixion, so when they heard about taking up your cross, they pictured the thousands of of people they had seen carrying crosses to their place of crucifixion and lining the roads. They said, oh, that might happen to me? Yeah. Jesus did not hide the fact that following him is going to be hard and may even cost you your life. Okay. Two verses later, he says, but also count the cost of not following me. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Sit down. Think it through. Weigh it out. I could lose my soul or I can take up my cross and follow Jesus. And to choose not to decide is to choose against. My theology says that those who fall away from Christ were never really believers in the first place. Maybe they were sold an easy gospel. Maybe they were sold a prosperity gospel. And they thought, yeah, this is exciting. I know church people are singing and they're caught up in it. And sure, sign me up but they've never really come to grips with the fact that Christianity is about sinners realizing they're sinners in need of a Savior, repenting of your sin, trusting in Christ, and He becomes our Savior and our Lord. Really, the way we present Christianity in this country is as a product being sold to consumers. But if you're a consumer, you're still the Lord. And I get to evaluate the product. And if I get tired of the product or it's hard continuing with the product, I'm done with the product. It's like you change your cable. Biblical discipleship sees Christianity, sees our role not as Lord, but as servants to the Lord and to one another. Honestly, how do you view Christianity? As a consumer or as a servant following the Lord? All right, pick up in verse 17 in the middle. But you are a God ready to forgive gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and you did not forsake them. So God was going to destroy them for their grumbling and complaining and wanting to go back to Egypt. And Moses prayed and said, don't destroy them, and God relents. Verse 18, even when they had made for themselves a golden calf, and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies in your great mercy. You did not forsake them in the wilderness. So 
God says, I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to do all these miracles. I'm going to give you these Ten Commandments. One of them is don't make a statue and worship it. Worship it. Can, you, can you do that? And they make a golden calf and worship it. 19, the pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. And did you ever notice this? Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. In 40 years, how many new pairs of clothes do you get? Right? You go, how, this can't be true. It couldn't happen because they would need new clothes. No, he gave them magical clothes. Magical breakfast every day, right? And magical feet that didn't swell. Okay? It's a supernatural journey that they're on. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven. Okay? Oh, let me go back. I missed a verse. Verse 22. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You know, when, when we look at Israel, um, we call this the West Bank because it's on the west side of the Jordan River. But when they first took possession, they also took the East Bank. They had Heshbon and Bashan. They had this whole region here. Okay? You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven. Remember the promise to Abraham? You'll have a multitude. Yep, now they're in the millions. Okay? You brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and the people of the land, that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities. A fortified city would be a city on a mountain with a wall around it. And rich land and took possession of houses full of good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them uh, to, turn, uh, to turn them back to you and they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven, and according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. So what's this referring to? Well, this is the early stages of, of Israel. When they would commit idolatry, God would allow the local uh, peoples to capture them and to oppress them. So God, they would cry out to God and they would raise up judges like Samson, like Gideon, like Ehud, the left-handed judge who stabbed a guy in the stomach. Right? So, so these are, this is local oppression 
and he gives them local within Israel saviors or judges. Do they, do they learn, though? But after they had rested, they did evil again before you, and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies, and you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously. God owes us this. And did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hands of the peoples of the land. So what this is referring to is God allows Assyria first to come in and destroy the northern tribes and take them into captivity. It's in the 700s B.C. And then in the 500s B.C., Babylon becomes the world empire. They go in and destroy the southern part and take people captive. They burn and destroy Jerusalem and the temple. They're in captivity for 70 years. It looks like everything's lost. But then, God changes world powers to Persia, and the Persian kings allow Israel to go back and rebuild the temple and the city and the wall. And here we are in the time of Nehemiah, rebuilding the wall. And this is the... the we, we began with the assembly where for seven days they're, they're celebrating what God has done, but now they've just prayed this prayer of praise and repentance. Now, watch this. They say this, because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes and Levites and our priests. And you turn to Nehemiah chapter 10, and there are 27 verses of the names of people who signed this new covenant. I, I, I don't want you to say the word new covenant. This renewal of the old covenant. Okay. In fact, they even say, if we don't keep it, we bind ourselves, and you can curse us. We enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and to do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. And they even specifically say, we're not going to intermarry with the neighboring people who were idolaters. They had done that. They had neglected the Sabbath. We're going to keep the Sabbath. And we're going to take care of the temple. Okay? They even name these specific things. So if I were in a Bible study, I would stop and say, I want you to discuss at your table, is taking this oath, was this a good idea or not? Well, guess what happens? 
They take the oath. And we read that they intermarry with the other nations. And they neglect the Sabbath. And they let the temple be mistreated. And Nehemiah ends with Nehemiah being really upset. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. (laughs) But shouldn't it end happily ever after? No. This is... This is why people go, I read the Old Testament, I read all this reform and all this call for repentance, and then it ends like this? What? I don't understand. It makes no sense. No, no. It makes perfect sense. The point is this. What they need is not to make another promise because they broke the promise. It's kind of like New Year's Eve. I promise. I'm going to give this up and run and lift and then two days later you've broken it all okay so last point the point is we need a new covenant not just to to try harder under the old covenant we need a new covenant and that's what god promises them in the book of jeremiah it says behold the days are coming declares the lord when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant they broke. You see, the old co- they couldn't keep it. They didn't have any power to keep it. Well, what's going to be different? I will put my law within them, And I will write it on their hearts. He's going to change their hearts in this covenant. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. What they needed was not, I'm going to try harder. They needed to be born again. Let me me give you five spiritual levels of where... where, uh, Anybody in this room might be at, okay? First of all, there's the apathetic. They're not saved. They don't care. They just want to get out of here, okay? Then there's the promise. Oh, I should do this. The promisers. See, I'm, I'm, there's a screen back there, and I'm having a good old time. But the promisers, what are the promises? promisers? They're not saved, but they hear the sermon, and they go, I'm going to try harder. And try harder this time. Wait, that's where the Israelites are. Then there's the born again. Those who say, I can't do it. I'm a sinner. Save me. Change my heart. Okay. Then there's the born again but undisciplined. I'm truly saved. But, you know, the world is pretty tempting and... Life is busy and doing the discipline of reading the Bible and coming to church and repenting of sin and growing in Christ-likeness. They're saved, but they're undisciplined. And then there's the born again and growing, those who are loving the Lord and growing in the Lord and doing the disciplines. Okay. Now, we're going to celebrate communion. 
And at the Last Supper, Jesus holds up the cup and he says, this covenant is the, what does he say? The new covenant in my blood. It's his death on the cross that forgives our sins. He, is, he, he, ri- he ascends, he, uh, he rises from the dead, ascends into sends his spirit to indwell us. Okay. Can I give you my fear? My fear is that in many churches, we're just assuming that there's a lot of people here. Born again, but undisciplined. So do this, do this, do this. And the reality is a lot of people are right here. You, you can't skip number three. What's number three? Being born again. Getting life, new life from God. You, how do I do it? You like... The, the Pharisee and the tax collector who go into the temple, the Pharisee says, I am good and I've done all these things and I do this and I do that and aren't I good? And he does not go home saved, but the tax collector who bows his head, he can't even look up to heaven, he says, have mercy on me, a sinner. I can't do it. Forgive me, save me, change my heart. And a lot of people are too proud to go there. This is a church that preaches the gospel. The gospel is Jesus is our Savior. Jesus is the one who forgives us. Jesus is the one who gives us new life. Trust in Jesus. Yes, after you trust in Jesus, you should read your Bible. You should come to Wednesday night. <laughs> right? You, you, should, uh, you should give. You should serve. You should evangelize. But if you're doing that, in your own strength, it's just not going to work. Okay? So, we're going to receive communion. And, you know what? It, when the plates come by, you take, take the cup. But only if you're sure that you've been born again. If not, pass, pass the tray. This is for those who've been born again. Not not for perfect people. We do communion not because we're perfect, but because we're not perfect. But we've trusted Jesus. We've seen signs of him working in our life. We're, We're renewing not the old covenant, but the new covenant where he empowers us. You know what? Maybe your simple prayer is this. Lord, I have a new heart, but it's kind of a weak heart. Would you please strengthen it? Fill me with with new love, new energy, radical desire for you. So we are going to um, pass out the elements. And uh, Scott, if you want to come on up, let me pray for us. And then we will distribute communion. Lord, 
I pray that we would be radically honest with ourselves as to where we are. I pray, Lord, if, if some realize I'm, I'm number two, I need to go to number three. Do that humbling work in our hearts. And Lord, if we're number four, I pray that you would do your renewal work in us as we rely on you and you give us that new love and that new desire and that new energy. May we glorify you with our lives. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.